Hi friends, it's been a while. We hope you are well and happy and blooming. We also hope you are up for a good story, a good life, a good several lives actually, all together in one place. We'll be meeting a couple who has had a wide range of experiences as their family has grown. From adoption to surprise babies to IVF, and they have a lot of wisdom to share. I'm Lizzie Heiselt. And I'm Valerie Best. This is Cocoon, Stories of Gestation. We're hitting on some big themes with this story. Time and eternity, spiritual guidance, balancing mental and emotional health and pregnancy, just to name a few. So you might want to buckle up. And just to be upfront here, it's been a while. What, five years since we did this interview? And obviously, what happened in the past has not changed, but there have definitely been some developments in five years, so we'll catch you up as best as we can at the end, meaning the end of part three. Because yes, this is such an epic story with so many facets that we've had to break it up into not one, not two, but three parts. So here we go. I'm David Glick. I'm Kristen Palazzotto. I'm David's wife. And we've been married going on nine years. And we uh, we met at church, and I had Taylor. I'd been divorced for a while, a couple of years. And he had John and Carlos already at that time. And then we got married in 2008, and we had the three little ones not too long after that. I live in Staten Island. I'm married to my wife, Kristen Palazzato. Um, she's a smart woman. Um, we have uh, six children. <laughs> <laughs> Did you just do that math? <laughs> you know, I have to sometimes. It's funny. Um, the oldest is twenty. Old is he? Twenty-four, and the youngest is about eighteen months. So a bit of a range there. So we're going to go way, way back to the late nineteen nineties. Back when David was young and spry and living the life of luxury and ease in the City of Angels. And I was working, uh, doing some acting work, uh, some commercials, that kind of thing, and, and also teaching, uh, teaching kindergarten. And, um, and every now and then I taught in a poor area in East LA. And so I would get kids who were in foster care from time to time, and they were just the cutest things, but you also saw right, kind of the difficult lives they were having, right? They're five years old and, you know, just already all of this kind of trauma and difficulty. And I really enjoyed that life, but at the same point, it often felt like it was just everything kind of about me, right? Um, because, you know, what do you do? You go, you work, you make money, and then you just, you know, spend it on yourself, right? Or going out to eat with friends or things, which is nice. And uh, my co-teacher, she started talking about how she was going to sign up and get a foster child. And I thought, you know what, that would be cool. And so I figured I'd do the same, become a foster parent. And as I looked into it, I realized it just, the foster parenting thing wasn't maybe necessarily for me, that thing of taking a child and so often they go back to a situation which is often not really improved. Clearly, the life of luxury and ease is not for everyone, and definitely not for David. Not many single 30-year-old men would, one, teach kindergarten in struggling neighborhoods, and two, also look at their life of teaching kindergarten in struggling neighborhoods and think, too easy, I can do harder things. I decided that I would actually adopt out of foster care. Um, 
And, you know, I do remember there was definitely some pushback to that. Some pushback came from David's family, who were among the first to know of his plans. There was a lot of concern that adopting a child would make it harder for him to find a wife, which many of them felt was more important. But in general, many people just thought it was a very strange thing for him to be doing. Like, why? You know, I've been thinking about this a lot. Just, it sounds awful. Like, why, right? I mean, um, because it didn't seem like an unusual choice, really, to me to adopt um, back then. And yet I've noticed lots of people kind of think it, it was, I guess. Back in elementary school and, and middle school, those types of things, I was bullied quite a bit. Um, and, and really kind of ruthlessly sometimes. It was a difficult kind of thing. But I, I, I think some of those things made me perhaps, I mean, it's one of those things that was painful, but you look back and I, I think it did change who I am, maybe made me more compassionate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had always kind of had figured, um, once I was old enough to start kind of thinking about family and marriage and children that I wanted to adopt someday. David felt that someday did not necessarily have to wait for the marriage that he also hoped would eventually happen. He felt drawn to adopt because through his job teaching kindergarten, he saw so many children in horrible situations, and he thought he could do something about it. Maybe as a single guy, the home he could offer was not the ideal, but it certainly was a far cry better than being shunted around the foster care system with trash bags and cardboard boxes holding belongings. He could offer stability, compassion, empathy, love. And maybe he would eventually get married, and his family would look more traditional, but there were kids who needed homes now, so why should he wait? He started the process, home studies and foster care classes and all of those things, and he also had to go about trying to find a child to adopt, a child who really needed a home. Not to say this was an easy process to begin with, but finding a child, the right child to adopt, is pretty difficult. And so in LA, they would do an adoption fair, which is a terrible name probably, um, but it was a event and they were holding it at, at a park. And, um, and so they were having rides and games and things like that and you could go and, and see all the children who would be there for adoption. And um, so I signed up to be one of the people to go and meet these children and, um, and I found it just this overwhelming kind of thing. So I prayed about it a lot and one of the things I prayed is that I would make a connection with a child that I should or would be good for me to adopt and 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 only with that child which is maybe a cop-out but it, it just felt like if God could kind of you know point me in the right direction it would be nice. I mean if you can pray for anything from not sleeping through your alarm to finding the right child to adopt you might as well do it. Couldn't hurt. And so I went to this thing and, you know, I'm a kindergarten teacher, so I'm good with kids. And uh, I couldn't get any kids to be interested in playing with me. I remember sitting down next to one kid, and he was doing some crafts, and I started to do it with him, and he pulled it away from me and, and looked um, to the person next to him and started doing it with him instead. And a couple times during that day, I saw um, this kid, and he caught my eye a couple times. And then each time I would notice, like once he was on the train, that he was, you know, also when he'd come around and get a closer look, that he was disabled. And I didn't really want to adopt a disabled child. It seemed like just way too much. 
And another time I saw him, and then I noticed he was limping pretty heavily, and I thought, no. And so at the end of the day, I hadn't really made a connection with anyone. There was one boy who I thought was at least kind of fun. I'd written his name down on my paper they had given me. Your dance card. My yeah. dance card. <laughs> <laughs> and then I saw this child who I had noticed a couple times sitting alone uh, kind of down the hill with a social worker. And so I went down there and I sat next to them. And um, he had on a soft helmet and and he was eating Doritos and ice cream kind of at the same time. And he offered me this Dorito that was covered with melted ice cream and possibly other stuff from his mouth or whatever because he was just eating away. And I, as my wife knows, I'm not really one to share straws or anything like that. I'm like, ugh. But I took the Dorito and I ate it. And he gave this smile. And when he gave that smile, I just knew. And so I... I put his name, obviously, on my dance card, as my wife calls it. Um, and then later, you know, they called with more information. And they told me that he had cerebral palsy and he had a brain shunt, um, was blind in his left eye um, from a motor vehicle accident that happened with his biological parents when he was one. And that just seemed really overwhelming. And, you know, I, I didn't really know a lot about CP at the time, but it, that just sounded like a scary kind of thing. And she said, this other kid who you put the name on, he, she also said that with uh, Carlos, the, the one who has a cerebral palsy, that um, they actually hadn't finalized um, basically terminating the parental rights. They hadn't gone through the court process to do that, and it would take a little more time. Whereas the other child, his parental rights had already, everything been terminated. He was ready to go immediately. David still felt that Carlos, the boy with cerebral palsy, was the right child for him. But he wasn't available, and he was also a little bit overwhelming. Adopting a child with special needs was a lot. So David said yes to the other boy, the one who was available, even though he didn't feel like it was really the right thing for him to be doing. He said whenever he thought about this little boy, he had a feeling of conflict. He couldn't imagine what the future might look like with him. But when he thought of Carlos, he could see a future for him. He could see him growing up into a nice young man, just feelings of peace. David didn't know what to do with all of that, so he just kept praying and asking God to bless that the right thing would happen. And then, just a couple of weeks before he was to meet the other boy who was available, he got a call from the social worker. She didn't know what had happened. David had been at the top of the list for this boy, but a social worker had chosen another couple who had put him on their dance card. But the social worker said, Carlos was still available. And so in the end, you know, I went forward with that adoption for him. He was five when I met him, and then he was six when uh, the adoption was finalized. It takes a long time to adopt a child, and by the time David was approaching the end of the process, he'd actually moved away from L.A. to New York City. And of course, there were complications. A judge going out of town, another judge wondering if they'd done enough to find Carlos's biological parents, plus a little confusion about whose jurisdiction this was now, New York or L.A.? David's lawyer from a high-powered firm working pro bono was able to make some phone calls and get the adoption finalized when David flew out from New York one week. And that was that. Sort of. It was the beginning. David had felt strongly that he needed to move to New York, and he felt good about that decision. But bringing a six-year-old child with him didn't make it easy. After all, Carlos didn't get the same confirmation that New York City was the place for him 
Plus, for all intents and purposes, Carlos's foster parents had been his mom and dad, and he'd just been taken from them. He had lived with the same foster parents for about three years, um, and they had decided they no longer wanted to have foster children, which was kind of why they had ended up starting to look to place him for adoption. Um, but he didn't really understand that, right? He's five. As far as he was concerned, they were really kind of mom and dad. So it had been a good environment for him? I think it had been a loving environment. Um, you know, they had biological children of their own, and I wouldn't say it was an equal kind of thing. Um, he had virtually no toys. Clothes were locked in the closet because I guess he and the other foster child in the home would play with the clothes. Uh, you know, they're going to play with something. Mm-hmm. So they'd lock that up so they couldn't, right? So there wasn't a, a, a lot of, I think, that kind of thing, but yeah. still. Stable. Stable yeah. and safe, right? Being adopted into a stable, loving home is probably the dream of many children in foster care, but it probably wasn't a distinction Carlos was able to make at the time. Instead, moving across the country with this new person was destabilizing and confusing. I had him in a program where when he was done with school and and if I was still teaching or whatever, he would stay there for, you know, a couple more hours. I'd pick him up at about, uh, it was about four o'clock. Um, great after-school program, but he, which he loved, but whenever I'd pick him up, he'd just burst out crying, it seemed, you know. Um, though at, at first he'd never cried at all for probably about two weeks, and one day when we came walking out of there, he just went running from me down the street and um, seemed to not be able to find any private place, I guess, he was looking for, so he stood against a chain-link fence crying so that I wouldn't see and that was the first time he said why right and it was you know I felt for him yeah it's a crappy thing for a kid to have to go through um and after we moved to New York um he still sometimes for probably at least half a year would cry every time he'd see me even though I think he was happy but he just I mean, partly he just really loved his friends and loved school, and it was it wasn't a very um, you know good, I guess, at hiding whatever he thought at the moment. Um, but one time, I just said to him, "Carlos, if you cry one more time when I pick you up, because you know I was worried people was going to think I was abusing him or something." Right? I mean, what are they going to think? You're making me look bad. Carlos's emotional state aside. Becoming a dad to a six-year-old wasn't exactly an easy transition for David, either. You know, there were times it was a little difficult, and I called my mom sometimes asking for advice and things. You know, there was one time where, uh, you know, I it's an interesting thing, right? And, the, and there was one time I just looked at him and I thought, I don't think I love this kid at all. And, which is an awful thing, so I called my mom, she's, you know, got 11 kids, and, and she said, oh, I thought that about you guys all the time. <laughs> And I thought, okay. Um, You know, and you kind of realize that, you know, you don't always just feel this, right, overwhelming whatever sometimes. Sometimes you're just like, ugh. Sometimes you just... I think most parents can relate to that sentiment. Bonding to a child in any situation can take time. And worrying or stressing about it probably doesn't help. Not to mention the fact that even if you do love someone unconditionally, they can still annoy you can still puzzle you, can still get under your skin. But David just kept living and working and trying and bumbling through until, after a while, 
they really felt like a family. I, I don't think he had ever eaten a vegetable in his life before I got him. Um, he just wanted rice and chicken. That was it. Um, so we had some good little um, battle of wills over things like that. Um, but, you know, um, I don't know. You know, I, I, I wouldn't say it was a huge change in lifestyle, believe it or not, because he was a pretty easygoing kid. So he was just often dragged along with me wherever I was going, for better or worse, now that I look back on it. Um, though I, I don't think really worse. I think he's turned out fine. He seems okay. Yeah. <laughs> he seems un- unmarred. But, you know, I, I do remember being at a friend's house once, and it was probably, and, and Carlos at about 7.30 would really kind of nod off. And and so I probably wasn't, you know, now I'm always like with my kids, right? It's bedtime. I really want to get them into bed. Um but then, you know, I remember one time, it was probably 9 o'clock, and, and he had fallen asleep. He had crawled into this nice padded uh, doggy bed they had and crawled up to sleep. So I definitely felt like a caretaker at the beginning, right? Um, and, and I do think in that regard, it was a little different than the biological children I've had um, in that, you know, from kind of the get-go, when they're just a baby and that kind of thing, there's more of this something, right? Maybe it's uh, biological, evolutionary, whatever. You know, it was definitely more of a process. Um, but, I, you know, I think love is a commitment, right? So you make that commitment, and, and if you do, and you do the right things, then the other stuff follows. And of course, Carlos became part of the larger family and social circle that David was a part of as well. Some had been on board from the beginning. Others had resisted the idea at first, but had a change of heart when there was a living, breathing boy in front of them. And despite what many had thought was an unusual choice, David felt that he and Carlos were supported and cared for by family, friends, and church. You know, my mom was always, at least outwardly, I don't know if she ever said anything to anyone else, but was always supportive. Um, And I think once my dad met him, well they just felt that this was their grandchild and so they were very supportive right to them this and and they never treated them any differently than any biological grandchildren at all and uh, my brothers I know one of them later said that he had been really worried um, but later on said how what a good thing he thought it had been Um, and there were people in church as well who would say the same thing that they thought it was crazy when they first heard and 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 once I kind of met Carlos and saw it, I, I think they all, when the reality, right, of this child getting a home was in front of them, they're good people, right? So it kind of changed their view when they kind of saw it in kind of real life. And, you know, it was nice. The ward I was in was actually the Glendale Ward in California. And um, they threw a, like, adoption shower, which was really awesome of them. Beyond that, David and Carlos had a wider impact, inspiring others to reevaluate their choices and think about adopting out of foster care as well. David started a trend once they moved here. He got all the singles adopting out of foster care. Is that right? No. A couple more people. Really? That's a, a couple more kids out of the foster care system. That's yeah. That's going on your report card. Before, two people though, weren't there? Anyway. <laughs> That's just one that I can just remember, one. yeah. Um, 
And I think she'd already been thinking about it, and it just uh -huh. kind of was enough of the push to, yeah. mm -hmm. you know. We are pretty used to the idea of women deciding to become mothers on their own, one way or another. But it is significantly less common for a man to make the same kind of decision. Uncommon enough that it can cause many more raised eyebrows and whispers behind hands. I, I suppose you're right, right? There were always the whispers as well about, you know, your sexual orientation or all those types of things that you would hear sometimes, including from fellow churchgoers and things and lots of, you know, people need to just kind of chill and let people live their lives, I think. I do wish more, you know, single people would think about that sometimes. I mean, it's not for everyone. No. Right? But, um... But I, I don't think that we necessarily should just sit there always waiting, right? In, in our culture, waiting for marriage to be whole. Or to, you know, no, live your life and, and do those things that you want to do. And and if marriage comes, great. But for a lot of people, it doesn't, too. And, you know, so live your life. Which, of course, David did. It wasn't easy, not in the beginning when Carlos was young and coming to understand that David was his dad and New York City was his home. Nor as he got older and David had more experience raising a child with disabilities. Remember, Carlos has cerebral palsy and is blind in one eye. And while David kind of thought that adopting a disabled child out of foster care might have been a ticket to heaven and a reason to take things easy for the rest of his life, he was open to his family growing. This openness led David to make another surprising choice. That's right. I mean, you know, I adopted another kid. Um, uh and my son John, uh, when he was a teenager, um, and you know we certainly love him as well. Um, but that adoption, you know, I wouldn't say has gone so well, right? Um, he's currently in jail um, for the I don't know. I, I really have lost count how many times, and and I will say that. Uh, once he started kind of stealing and, and the drug use and the drug dealing and, and all that kind of stuff, just the, the havoc it wreaked on our family and, but it was still very painful, right? We, by that point, you know, I'd had him for a couple of years and I had really grown to love him as well. David hadn't started out wanting to adopt a teenager. He was looking at files for younger children, five-year-olds like Carlos had been. He had some pretty specific thoughts and hopes for what a child he adopted would be able to grow into, as many parents have for their children. But somehow, this file for a teenager was with all the rest he was looking through, and while he wanted to just put it aside, he couldn't. And as with many other parents, David found that you can make the choice to bring a child into your home, but you can't choose who or what that child is going to be. Yeah, I kind of did this thing with Carlos and I did it with John too, right? You know, it blessed me to adopt someone who will go on a mission and they'll get married in the temple and they'll, right? I mean, all this kind of, like setting these conditions on the child that, you know, you're asking God to give you, um, which is kind of funny looking back on it because that doesn't happen with people with biological children either, right? Um, you don't get to kind of set the conditions to God of how the child's going to turn out. Um, and, you know, John's, uh, his profile there was just so much abuse in it um, and years of it and some pretty awful awful stuff that I just thought no way um, and yet I couldn't bring myself to just throw it away like I had so many other things I had been sent and um, 
when I was praying about it and one month I was fasting about it and sitting in church and praying about it and the very strong thought came to me that God was saying, you already know who it is. John was 14 when David started the adoption process, 15 when it was finalized. And while David recognized that this was going to be a hard situation, he could not have understood the difference between a child who has been hurt and damaged by a car accident, as Carlos was, and a child who has been damaged by abuse, as John was. It's given me a lot of gray hairs, I think. Um, you know, it just, I would say it's one of the most traumatic things I've been through. Um, and I just don't know how to explain to anyone. When you've had the police in your house multiple times tackling your kid down the stairs and you're grabbing the other children out of the way and just, you know, all that kind of, it just... Right, I've, I've got two children I've adopted who have brain damage, right? The one from a motor vehicle accident, but the other one from severe abuse, and the abuse is far more worse and far more difficult to fix. And, and it just makes you realize why it's so vital that we take care of our children and we love them and we treat them well and we teach them at a young age when they can still learn all of these things, right? Self-control, impulse control, all of that that just goes on and on that we're not really so easily taught if you're already 15, 16, 17. Adopting John was clearly a lot more than David anticipated, so much so that he himself identifies it as extremely traumatizing. And of course, having been a parent of a child with special needs, David was aware that there were resources he could access to try to help. What he maybe wasn't aware of was that some children are resistant to, or even beyond, what help even professionals can give. Once I found out he was dealing drugs, we just, you know, we've been trying all these other things, and that just seemed like, oh my gosh, right? We tried sending him to one of these schools, kind of where you send them away, which we just knew was not what you want to do with the kid who's been adopted, right? You don't want to be sending them away. They feel like it's just another, and yet, um, I remember that when he had gotten arrested one of the times and the judge had sent him back, the judge said, okay, you have to do this and this and this, you know, be home by this time. John wouldn't even do it for one day. And you can't force someone that old. You just, you can't. Um, and so we tried different things. And this school we had sent him to was upstate and not cheap. And, <laughs> and you know, I had very troubled kids. And... Uh, I, I think after so many times of them having to call the state police to find him in the woods when he'd run off, they were just like, we can't keep him. I mean, even a place that takes the most troubled kids was just like, no. And this gets at the heart of what David's vision was when he first thought about adopting out of foster care. He had seen through his work as a kindergarten teacher the difficult, disheartening home lives that some children were immersed in. He had hoped to alleviate some of that pain and suffering by providing a loving home for a child. But in adopting John, an older child with years of abuse in his life, it highlighted the limits of David's vision. It also reinforced his sense of the importance of homes as more than structures to meet a child's basic physical needs. As Kristen said, It was saying you can't replace what parents do for a child when they bring them up with the right sort of discipline and teaching. And if you add up the value of all the services that were provided to him, we kind of brought in all these people and therapists and schools and 
it had to be millions of dollars by the time you're done. Nothing could fix what a what a parent could have if if he'd been raised that way from the beginning. It's just amazing when you think of the value of that work that parents do. The challenge that John had in David's view was that he was always looking for something, but he didn't know what he was looking for. He wanted love, but you can't hold love in your hand the way you can hold a cell phone. He wanted to feel like he was accepted just the way he was, but the abuse he'd suffered built walls in his brain to keep him away from touching that kind of vulnerability. I think for John, not really knowing what real parental love means, right? It was always about things. So if he could get a new thing, he felt, right? Um, which would be the only thing that really kind of, because when he first started stealing, it wasn't to do drugs or anything. He just stole to get a new thing. Mm. Um, and he would end up with five, six phones, and I was always, like, trying to find out who these phones belonged to. And, and, you know, in New York State, your only option, and we did try calling the police a couple times, was either to have him charged as an adult with a felony um, even though he was 16, which is insane, right? Or they would do nothing. And there was no kind of in-between to help out parents in this kind of situation. And, you know, the last thing you want is your child charged as an adult and stuck into Rikers Island. What David did want for John was a family and a safe place for him to rest. And there have been times when John has demonstrated that he wants that too. Soon after David adopted John, he met Kristen and they started dating. While David knew pretty quickly that he wanted to marry Kristen, she wasn't so sure. While there were several reasons that caused Kristen to be a little slower than David to jump in, one of those reasons was David's teenagers. These two very different boys with very different and complex needs. She did get to the same place that he was before too long, and they got married, blending their families of David's sons with Kristen's daughter. But their first year of marriage was hard. John hadn't yet gone to the residential school and was living with them, being difficult and, intentionally or not, driving wedges into their relationship. Kristen said it was a huge obstacle to negotiate and to not get angry at each other about John's behavior. But in spite of the way he was acting, there were indications that John really did want to be part of their family and to have what they were offering him. When David and Kristen got married, they did it in the Temple of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, where they would not only be married for their lives, but sealed together after their deaths as well, and their children could be sealed to them. And John wanted to be able to be sealed to us, which is right where, you know, our children kind of become part of that. Um, and he managed to kind of get his life together for... Six months? Yeah, I think it was six months, his bishop at the time had told him, um, so that he could go into the temple with us and, and do that. And so I think there were things for John that didn't mean something to him. Um, and I think for him, at least he does know that there are people who care and love him, right, somewhere. Um, even if he can't get his life together, even if he may never be able to really live in society. I, I hope that's not true. I keep hoping maybe by the time he's, I keep changing the date, the age, now I hope by 30. At this point, John doesn't live with them, and so his trauma doesn't impact their lives on a daily basis. They are able to maintain that perspective about why they adopted him and what it is, despite the challenges, that makes it a good thing in their lives. Wherever he goes, wherever his life takes him, he has a family who loves him and the knowledge that they are there for him always. 
if we hadn't adopted him, if David hadn't adopted him, however bad his life is right now, he wouldn't have that. And neither would we. That relationship we do have, whatever it is, and whatever's good about it, and however small that might be, none of us would have that if David hadn't adopted him. And for us, it's great because we love him, and he's our kid. And for him, I think it's great to feel he has these fa- He knows that we love him and that we always do, no matter what he does, he wouldn't have that. There isn't anyone else who feels that way about him. So there's nothing to regret there. Now, we're really only halfway through David and Kristen's story, but this feels like a good place to stop and rest for a bit. Let their story settle on you. Next time, we'll tell you the story of Emmeline and Annabeth, the children they had after they got married. The story is full of surprises and challenges and learning to be the family that you are, not the family you thought you were going to be. We hope you'll join us for that.